everybody. Welcome to Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, Zach here as always, and Matt is here as well. How you doing, man? Doing good, man. I mean, it's a nice Sunday, good weather, not 100 plus degrees, mm-hmm. so able to do something outside and actually enjoy the day too. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been... This this episode, we gave it a shot two different times before today. So uh, Matt had thunderstorms rolling through. Then those thunderstorms rolled through to me the next day. Um, we were dedicated to the cause, but it just didn't happen during the week. So we're here on a Sunday morning and everything is rolling. So hopefully uh, we get this one out. The episode today is going to be uh, one of our um, biology slash husbandry deep dives. Uh and we're going to be focusing on babies, uh, and specifically, it's hatching season. I know up at West Liberty, we have over 100 babies out hatched, and we're currently in the process of trying to get all of the little boogers to eat. And uh, Matt and I were talking, and we thought, given the timing of the episode dropping, um, we like these deep dives that we do, and that an episode just dedicated to getting baby snakes to eat Colubrid uh, specifically would totally be a worthy endeavor. So that's what our episode is today. Um, so we don't have a guest. Uh, so we're going to just give quick updates and dive right in. Uh, and yes, our our third co-host is with us, Matt's dogs. <laughs> so that's what you your bark in there. Um, is that Cujo or yep, Cooper? That's the truth of it. <laughs> That was Cujo, so that's why I'm actually moving (laughs) locations with the laptop as Yes, Matt is moving currently. So anyway, I can give my update while Matt finds a new locale. Um, So uh, yeah, it's been a nutty couple weeks at the university. Things are hatching uh, like crazy. We have the master's thesis that my student Taylor Hartman's doing where we're, we're testing the kind of adage that if you incubate eggs at a colder temperature you get a larger neonate resultant of that so um we've taken a bunch of clutches bull snake clutches black pine clutches gopher clutches more corn snakes than i can shake a stick at king snakes basically all the kind of common um north american colubrids and we took the clutch split it right down the middle if we could and incubated one at 82 and incubated the other half at 77 and pretty much all of the 80 the eggs that we put in our 82 degree incubators have hatched and this the 77s interestingly are slowly trickling which is kind of an inter- a, a neat observation they're not all hatching at once like the 82 degree animals do it's kind of a w- one egg here then two eggs the next day then another egg the third day which is kind of a well it isn't kind of it's an interesting observation so um this episode's very timely for my students who are currently trying to get little king snakes that want lizards to eat. Uh, so that's that. And then last week I was away. I was interesting. We tried to record from a hotel room in Washington, D.C., for me anyway, because um, I was at the Smithsonian working on craw crabs. But um, like we said earlier, a thunderstorm rolled through Indiana uh, and pretty much shut down that. And... Um, the next night we made plans and sure enough it came to me so uh and then i had family time um because my wife and my son came out to to visit at the later part of that trip so that's pretty much it um the only 
update that I have for people in general is there were a lot of people that were really interested in high black false water cobras. Uh, these animals look xanthic to melanistic. Um, I don't think that they're either. I just think that they have a lot of black in the color pattern. But I had a clutch of those hatch and um, babies will be ready to go soon. So if you're interested in those, feel free to reach out to me either on Facebook or Instagram. So that's my update. What's up with you, Matt? Well, um, similar to yourself, I mean, obviously we've got hatchlings started, going. Um, some stuff has been shipping, dependent on the weather and dependent on whether or not there might be delays in the FedEx system. So we've been being a little bit more cautious on uh, shipping animals right now just because of that. Um, but obviously the temperature across the United States has gone into some heat waves and cool waves and storms. So um, that's been part. But this week uh, received two clutches of Mullendorfi eggs. So nice. that was exciting. Um, and that's something even too, you know, in conversations that we talked about with like Josh, for instance, when we talked about file snakes, is like moving adult animals is sometimes it may take a year or two for those animals to settle in, especially even as little as moving about 30 minutes east of where I had <laughs> them situated before. They they didn't breed last year, but have bred this year. So that's exciting. Um, it's also a fun time, too, because within those Mullendorfi, those will be het aberrants and also mm. double het hypo aberrant animals. Um, so just kind of playing around with some of that long-term project and planning too as well. Um, something, you know, even when we've talked about, you know, each other's respective collections yeah. or even um, some of our guests, I mean, at this point, um, it would have to be something very interesting to acquire to add to my collection because I'm pretty much enjoying everything I just have now, <laughs> nice trying to advance projects um but have 10 mandarin uh females that are gravid about to lay pretty much any day so those will all be vietnamese different high yellows mm -hmm. strains exanthics um and multi mixes of those so that'll be fun um hatched out some cape files this past week um which are still one of my favorites mm -hmm. and also um the tricolor hogs that I hatched nice. out, all of those are still feeding very <laughs> weekly um, on frozen thawed pinks. Um, and I did do some scenting initially, but now they're all taking just washed pinkies. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so that that's kind of fun. Um, and, you know, one of the things, I mean, obviously, when we talked about tricolor hogs in the past, too, is their metabolism is extremely fast. So you do have to stay very high on terms of feeding those animals repeatedly, especially once they start their digestive process and start going through the feeding cycle and getting more established. Um, but like yourself, I mean, I think so far just here at my house, um, I mean, I've hatched out several hundred animals already. And um, yesterday, well, the last couple of days I took off of work just as a, a breathing room. <laughs> You've been frenetic. Turning the candle at, at both ends. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, Jeff Lodico of Chicago Reptile House in Orland Park came down. Nice. And we ended up just going to some restaurants, having some, but we spent a lot of time downstairs and diving into a lot of the history of some of these animals and talking and 
Jeff was sharing some of the stories of even when the shop originated and, and kind of going through a lot of the different um, changes that have occurred within the respective hobby. But even, you know, off of that, Jeff ended up handpicking some stuff for the shop. Um, but even off of that, he mentioned how hard colubrids are now to come by in terms of um, wholesaling as a mm -hmm. business. Um, it's something also very interesting because I received an email from Strictly Reptiles this morning about wholesaling stuff this year and off of ads I had posted on Fauna and Morph Market. Uh, huh. <laughs> so when you start to think about that in terms of respective colubrids, mm -hmm. um, it kind of puts a, a bigger picture as to availability and in one sense, um, likely pricing for what colubrids will be this year because of the short um, grasp or availability of those animals in the hobby as it sits today. Yeah. So. Well, the prices are going to almost certainly go up because of that. And it's just getting more expensive to keep these things alive. Like the rodent prices, everybody's talking about the rodent prices um, increasing by as little as 10 as much as 30 percent per mouse and you know when you've got babies to feed and you got to get them to a certain size before you can release them it's just unfortunately the nature of the beast so right well and you know a lot of people always talk about becoming a breeder and large-scale collections uh just for hindsight and and the a means of planning for that, I guess, in terms of discussion, especially since we're talking about, you know, feeding strategy today on babies. Um, I have 600 pinkies sitting in the sink uh, defrosting, right and I have 300 fuzzies and 500 adult mice in, inside defrosting too as well, and that doesn't include chicks or rats that I fed earlier this week. So, you know, your weekly bill can go from just a general hobbyist of only, you know, 10 bucks mm -hmm. upwards to where today I'm, I'm likely feeding about $700 worth of feeders. Yeah. That's insane. So is that a weekly expense uh, but or is this a that, oddball expense? Uh, it depends. So, you know, some animals I've started to play a little bit more with because I do think at in the hobby, especially, and also here within my own personal collection that, I have overfed some animals, mm -hmm. so I've been playing around with some of that too as well. Um, and also playing with that around and trying to see how that actually affects, um, you know, relative clutch sizes as well as animals uh, for double clutching too. And to be frank, I don't know whether or not I am finding anything conclusive yeah. from that. Um, I, I think in some aspects, feeding some of these animals less and and these are animals that have good body weight muscle structure so they're not skinny mm -hmm. um but once you've reached a certain point just like within humans you know our metabolism starts to slow down and we don't require as much energy or protein to actually continue on the more interesting part of this that i don't think many people experiment with or play with is i do use vitamins i do use calcium too as well as supplementation of the actual rodents because personally i don't think there is actually a um a good analysis of rodents and how they are available for the respective um hobby availability and selling of you know respective rodents because most of these rodents 
are also laboratory surplus animals. Mm -hmm. um, and they're grown indoors, but without access to, you know, natural sunlight, which would help with the promotion of vitamin D3 and calcium development. Um, so it's always been something of interest to me relative of that. Yeah, we, we may need to, I'm working with a couple animal nutritionists uh, that have actually taken a mouse at different stages of life and basically turned it into ash and then ran that ash through an HPLC and um, have been able to say at this stage of life, they a, a mouse that weighs X, or sorry, I think it's X gram of mouse equates to this much protein, this much lipid, this much vitamin A, B, you know, C, D, E, whatever. Uh, and I have thought about maybe bringing them on. The only issue is when I communicate with these people, they're, they're talking like 300 miles above my head. I usually talk to them, take a lot of notes, and then I go to my <laughs> veterinary books I have and then try to discern over the next three days the conversation I had that lasted 20 minutes. So, um, but yeah, I think that would be kind of, that would be something interesting if we could pull that one off. And I do agree. I mean, there's, it is well under, it's, oh, it's yeah. understood that if you heat up these things to thaw them out, you are absolutely degrading some of the nutrients, whether you're degrading them an appreciable amount that means anything, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, but they're definitely not coming out. I mean, the freezing process is going to degrade some of these biomolecules that we're talking about today. So yeah, good stuff. Well, and <clears throat> you know, one of the hard parts of it too, as well within rodents is, you know, obviously these animals are dead and the decaying process starts immediately. Mm -hmm. And once most people are going to either put these animals out, the frozen animal itself to defrost, some are going to put hot water mm -hmm. and run it, which is going to speed up the actual breakdown of the muscle tissue too as well. So there's a lot that goes into this and something, you know, that might be worth exploring, um, which is also part of the aspect of supplementation. Yeah. Something that's always been kind of degraded in, in terms of snake keeping, but was always promoted with lizards, frogs, just because of the ease of powder and adding it respective to feeder insects. Yep, 100%. But then you have to worry about hypervitaminosis, which is an absolute thing. Um, if you do the shake and bake thing, like I did back in the day, uh, not with my, my snakes, but when I was getting back into this with Cresteds, I think that I was supplementing my crickets way too much um, after learning what I've learned over the past couple of years with the, the nutritionists that I've been talking with. All right. Well, hell, this is good. We're already into it. We didn't even start it yet. <laughs> so, okay. So the way that today's episode is going to work is it's going to be a little bit different than our typical deep dives. Um, those are normally more of a conversation, and this will certainly be a conversation. But, um, you know, I'm a humble guy, and I absolutely know that Mr. Most here has way more experience getting animals to eat i mean he just said he's got 700 feeders thawing on his sink and i think i thought out maybe 50 yesterday and did the majority of my collection that's here at the house so i'm going to kind of put forth a we're gonna have some generalized topics 
and then I'm going to put forth a, an idea, let Matt speak, and if I have anything that can add to the conversation, I'll add it. But if not, we'll just move on to the next topic here. So um, Matt is earning his paycheck for the podcast today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, the, the first thing I want to talk about before we get to feeding uh, is this idea of stress. Uh, I can flat out tell y'all after really doing the deep dive into herpetoculture, uh, messing with the cryptosporidium the way that I have, comparing sterile um, to naturalistic enclosures or uh, rack systems to PVC enclosures, uh, all that kind of good stuff. It, it, the, the, the thread that seems to be most associated with an animal, we don't like using the word thrive, but basically surviving and reaching its full potential biologically is managing stress. Um, when you manage stress and you're functioning as a bio, as an organism and all is well, there's a, there's something we all learned about. If you had a biology class, if I used to teach it in non-majors bio, it's called homeostasis, uh, which is basically homeo meaning the same or stable and then stasis meaning not much change. So when you, an organism reaches homeostasis, it's not overly stressed. Those stress hormones are going to be lower and that's when you're going to achieve maximum growth. And that's when you're going to achieve maximum behavioral um, interaction with the environment. And in this situation, the act of feeding is a behavior. So if you manage stress, the animals aren't going to be scared. If they're not scared. They're probably going to eat. It's a very simple equation. And when we have baby colubrids, what separates our baby colubrids from things like boas and pythons and uh, the, the, the boids is that most, not all, most baby colubrids come out and they are relatively small and they are basically food for pretty much any carnivorous animal that bumps into them in nature. So they have entrenched in their brains this need for cover, um, need for a stress-free environment. Uh, and, and so I think before we jump into feeding, we have to talk a little bit about housing. So when you have... Oh, and then another thing before we get too far in, we're also going to approach today's episode from two different angles. One angle being starting you know, a snow corn snake, which is essentially as close to a domesticated snake as you can get, um, compared to maybe starting a new line of mandarins that just came in off the ship, which is something that Matt has a lot of experience in. You're not going to be treating those two animals fresh out of an egg the same at all. So um, we're going to discuss that as, as well. So when it comes to housing, you, you've had colubrids hatch. Uh, and let's, we're not talking about false water cobras that come out the size of pythons. We're talking about our good old-fashioned corn snakes, kings, Asiatic rats, the milk snakes, even some pitch ophis, even though I did have black pines hatch this past week. And holy Moses, those are big babies. But anyway, um, how, what is your setup uh, for for the babies yeah all right so initially after hatching i will typically keep the entire clutch together until they shed for the first time um, i typically house those in six quart tubs so for instance a clutch of corn snakes mm -hmm. that is hatched um you know i'll usually put in there in each one of those six core tubs the respective same type of substrate okay. of which the animals as adults would be kept on so that being aspen cypress mulch 
or you know a variety of each in that respected um, container. From there, I typically would offer multiple hides and multiple avenues of hides. And that actually comes into a lot of questions respective of what you just mentioned, you know, foliage, litter, um, being able to escape predators because that is an aspect of stress on these animals. And obviously within the life cycle of animals, they obviously know, you know, just like anything that there likely is predation and a giant, um, five foot 10 <laughs> humanoid hand going in to grab stuff is, is probably not the first thing they were expecting to see. Um, that being said, I've, I've played with this a little bit more now over the years. And I, I do think there is some aspects of this that still, um, are discerning, but also, um, may aid to, um, higher level breeders, but also simplicity of it. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the biggest things when keeping um, clutches is you are now going to be putting much more time in your collection as well as the respective uh, maintenance of the animals. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest moral and ethically aspects of breeding and keeping animals is you can't slack off. This is life. You're working yep. with life. You need to provide it with the best options and care that you can um that being said you need to keep your stuff clean so what i've done a lot of people over the years always just talk about well why not use paper towels why not use newspaper it's just you're never going to be able to keep that clean um, especially with colubrids that being said you also need to make sure that you're properly disinfecting and sanitizing the respective cage and that is not the same exact thing um, which is what a lot of keepers, I think, get confused in what and how those terms are actually applied to a habitat setting inside of your basement or spare bedroom. <laughs> mm -hmm. So obviously having the same substrate, a water bowl, um, I do change water bowls every couple of days to make sure that there is no bacteria growth because any water bowl is going to build up bacteria in it. And I would never recommend even to a keeper that's keeping Asian rat snakes or any sort of tropical species to just dump the water bowl in the cage to increase moisture because now you've just dropped a whole bunch of bacteria into the animal's cage too as well. Um, you can't take shortcuts. Mm -hmm. um, but with hides themselves, um, you have to make it simple. Um, you have to make it so you can sanitize the environment. So what I've actually done as of recent is start using newspaper as hides and folding it mm -hmm. because the animal will be in the substrate, but will also use that to have something as a weight or cushion on their back. Um, also respective of that, I have my family, um, my mom, my sister, everyone, <laughs> they always save paper towels, holder, the, yeah. the rolls and toilet paper rolls. Um, and I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah. so typically from that, I'll cut those in half and I'll use those as just temporary hides. I've also gone to the extent of going to Gordon Foods Supply or Gordon Food Services, whatever uh -huh. the respective restaurant supply company is. And I typically buy what they would commonly use for popcorn at a fair. Yeah. Just little paper trays that you would put some food item in. And I use those as disposable hides because they're cheap, effective, 
and don't require a ton of time for cleaning afterwards because cool. most people they're going to have urates or feces and it's easier just to dispose of um that being said i mean they are paper they are going to deteriorate yeah you could likely recycle them if you want to as well um and i do that for both asian rat snakes um and i also do it for north american colubrids as well as tropical colubrids too um I've also done this too with pythons and boas um, because of the relative nature of it. Now, with that also being said, in some situations I've used cork bark flats too as well, um, especially if it's in a higher moisture environment. And But the key for maintaining or creating this homeostasis of stress is the animal has to feel secure. Yes. Because if the animal's not feeling secure, they're not going to eat. Um, and which also brings in a lot of the questions that we'll talk about today or discussion we'll talk about today because as you mentioned zach the number one priority in in keeping these animals is maintaining that homeostasis because what can happen is you throw off one of these variables and animals can start regurgitating very quickly they may also um, stop feeding mm -hmm. never feed and the one aspect of this that we haven't really touched on yet is temperature yeah um because if your temperatures humidity are not optimal for the animal you can also create that stress that triggers now not only the animal itself which is cold-blooded which temperature regulation helps with the metabolism here and if that temperature is inappropriate or maybe potentially too high, you're speeding up the metabolism of the animal, and that animal is actually going to fade a lot more quickly, um, especially if it's not eating, it's stressed, and we've just thrown off homeostasis altogether. 100%. And that's where... So we are kind of preaching to the choir because we do things similar. <laughs> so um, one thing I would... That's where having the, the substrate be mulch or pine shavings not pine shavings aspen pines a whole you can use pine yeah we shavings, can go down so. that path but we're gonna get flamed by people and i don't want to <laughs> deal with that so pretend like i didn't say that people who hate pine um anyway but um i think a lot of people real or, or maybe a lot of people do i don't know when you add that substrate that's not paper uh to the tub that you're holding the animals in if you're providing it belly heat and that's how the, the the tub or whatever is being warm warmed when you get away from the heat pad up on top of the substrate you're creating a thermal gradient there that you don't necessarily get if you're just using a piece of paper um, because the paper Ooh. is one continuous object so when it gets warm the whole thing gets warm or obviously one end's going to be cooler than another but uh if you're trying to get to that kind of maximum thermal state providing a substrate that has depth to it is going to inadvertently provide a thermal gradient that you're not going to provide with something else so uh there's that and then another thing when it comes to stress this is kind of cool uh there's a the the cure she's the curator now at the philadelphia zoo she was the curator at st louis zoo her name's lauren augustine she did a study and they looked at corticosterone levels in snakes and what they found and they were looking at like husbandry strategies 
and they were looking at the stress levels in snakes where you were doing what, what we're oftentimes taught to do, which is you go in and then you do a complete substrate change weekly. And what they actually found is when they did that, that the stress levels were higher than they were in snakes that whose cages were allowed to get a little funky. Now, I'm, I'm not promoting the funky. I'm not. But what they concluded was that there was a familiarity associated with that substrate because as the snake slithers around the substrate, it's putting down its scent. We all know that snakes' chemoreceptive abilities go way beyond ours. They live in a chemical world. And just by them going around laying down their scent, that's going to send a, a message to them that I've been here before. There wasn't stress here before. It's okay. And if you use a mulch type substrate, you can do something called spot cleaning where you see the pile of poo and you remove all of that substrate, make a quarter of the substrate or half the substrate, but you can also leave the other half that's not soiled in there. And that's going to basically let that chemical cue stay in there with the baby that tells it, okay, this is a safe spot. Because when you remove all that substrate, and this is what you do if you're keeping it on paper, you are basically, from a chemical viewpoint, even though they're in the same tub, there's an awful lot of different in that same tub, and that might lead to them basically freaking out. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, some babies, like I can tell you, once false water cobras start eating, you can clean their substrate all day long. You can put them in another room on the floor and throw a pinky at them and they will eat it. Uh, but we've definitely had animals that would not start eating. And uh, it it was it kind of threw the students off at West Liberty because I was like, we're just going to let their tub get a little funky. Um, and they kind of looked at me like, this is sacrilege. What are you saying? Th th these th things need to be clean. Well, like in, in certain situations... Leaving that chemical cue is okay. It, it's a judgment call because it could totally go the back, the other way and you've got bacteria growth going all over the place. But that's where you as a keeper have to be on it. And the way you'll be on it is by paying attention to your animals and not just checking them one time a week. So there you go with that. So, um, so you're keeping them in six quarts altogether. At what point... Do they get separated out into not, their own? Time? Well, so a few. A few, not, okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just to, yeah, just to touch on that okay. before we have some animal rights activists mm -hmm. uh, on this. But uh, so you know, for instance, if I had a clutch of twenty corn snakes, I would not put all twenty corn snakes in in one six quart tub. <laughs> there is a means yeah. of aspect of certain ratios of which you know numbers that work well, um, and and typically. What I have found interesting off of this is, you know, we, we've commonly said, you know, reptiles aren't sociable animals. I mean, that's always been kind of one of those things that was mm -hmm. kind of broad or promoted, especially with snakes. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's actually the true statement here, especially with hatchlings, because typically as hatchlings, you may find dens of hatchlings mm -hmm. as well as communities respective of that. Um especially spending a lot of time in the field um, studying Thamnophis or garter snakes. Um, it, it's a very common appeal, and typically when you're looking for hatchlings, you'll find them in groups. Yes. Um, so off of that, you know, depending on the animal, depending on the species, depending on the age, um, it could be anywhere from three to four in a six-four tub. Okay. Um, and typically my my structure or how i do things here is i sex animals out of the egg um i pop animals i also probe as a means of verification for sexes 
but I do that purely because when I'm organizing animals, it makes it a lot easier for me to actually visually see what I have. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing off of that is if I have males and females separated, I also have a second tub to that tub of which those initial animals are housed in because then I start to monitor feeding respective of those animals. Um, I don't use place cards or no cards on every mm -hmm. one of my specific animals. And the reason why is um, I just don't have the time for it. Yeah. And, and that's just an honest opinion of mine. But what's very interesting, though, doing this so frequent and, and as well as pretty much being within my collection daily, I know which animals I fed. I know, you know, mentally which animals um, are feeding regularly. But for hatchlings, the way that I put it, I still use masking tape or um, painter's tape on the actual tub. And I have keep track then of feeding versus non-feeding animals and have respective dash marks on that actual tub. So this way I know how many meals those animals have had enough. So there's a backup tub to that. Nice. Um, after those animals have had um, five to six meals, that is when at that point I start to individually place animals. And then my keeping strategy for hatchlings goes very different from six quart tubs to actually using um, like the five and a half inch uh, shipping container. Sometimes we see for larger colubrids, mm -hmm. but also boas, pythons, um, and I'll house animals individually that way too as well. And then from there, I'll take a piece of masking tape, identify what the animal is, and really start to keep notes respective, you know, of dash marks um, and tallies respective of how many meals that animal has had individually. Um, now, free feeding strategy from this, you know, we're talking about hundreds of colubrids, right? Yeah. So the question would come, well, how do you even feed? You're not going to throw in you know, multiple pinks in one respective container where you have multiple animals going because if you did do that, um, <laughs> animals may eat each other just because of the scent um, of the actual rodent. And, a, you know, one animal starts to eat the head, the other one starts to eat the rear, and eventually someone's got to win. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I, <laughs> what I end up doing, so I've got 700 pinkies defrosting. Mm -hmm. I have 700 deli cups downstairs right now where I'll end up taking each individual pinky and putting it in each individual deli cup. Um, now, I personally do not reuse rodents. Um, if the animal didn't yeah. eat, it goes in the trash. And that, to me, is an important health standard because you're introducing a lot of variables that could end up coming a part of your collection. Um, a, the animal may not have taken the prey item because there may have been an issue with the prey item. Um, the other aspect of it, that animal has been slithering around its environment, urates, mm -hmm. feces, even if you were spot cleaning or full cleaning, if you didn't disinfect and sanitize properly, you've got something in there. And that animal now may have rubbed it across the respective rodent. Um... People take shortcuts, and sometimes those shortcuts end up banging you in the end. Um, but from that, I'll go in individually. I've even done as far as instead of using deli cups, um, I have also done 
in what is commonly known as the paper bag trick. Yep. And for that, after I put the pinkies in each one of the deli cups or within the paper bag, I'll end up stapling the paper bag. And then I'll put those three to four deli cups in the six quart um, tub of which those animals are housed in. And then I'll leave those animals um, for about four to five hours with the prey item included inside of there. And part of that aspect and individuality to it and introducing it back to its cage kind of goes into what you had mentioned, Zach, too. I mean, we're looking at an animal that relies on pheromones and also has a very interesting organ, the Jacobson mm -hmm. organ. And that's why a lot of this becomes very interesting in the means of exploration of scenting, but also having good quality prey items for the respective meals of these animals. Um, so by putting it back in that environment, it still feels that homeostasis because it is comfortable, even though it might be in a little deli cup, it's still within that respective container of which that animal was originally housed in. Um, but that's how I'll typically feed everyone individually, especially as neonates fresh out of the egg. And I personally do not wait for first sheds for feeding of animals. Um, I actually start feeding the... So once the animal has hatched, I mean, because animals are hatching all throughout the week, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm a routine guy. I, I stick to my routine. <laughs> so what I end up doing is I feed everything. I don't care if it hatched that day. I will feed that animal. And what's interesting enough, though, is a lot of those animals that may have not even shed yet, I'd say about 60 to 70% of them will have their first meal before they've even had their first shed. Um, huh. You know, something where... And, and one thing that I play with is I incubate at cooler temperatures. Um, for instance, all of my North American um, colubrids, um, file snakes, um, tricolor hogs, um, I actually incubate those at about 78 degrees Fahrenheit. And my respective Asiatic rat snakes, um, I incubate those at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, now there can be fluctuations that occur throughout that incubation cycle, but to be frank, I mean, even where these animals' eggs are laid, um, like Zach, I sent you um, some pictures that Stan Grumbeck sent mm -hmm. me of a Texas rat snake who had laid the eggs respective in what looked like a rodent burrow, mm -hmm. potentially, maybe. Um, but maybe when we get Stan on, we'll have Stan kind of explore on that because... You know, even in there, that animal is not going to be able to main that egg is not going to be able to maintain that temperature consistently. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be probably something that, you know, oh yeah, and you know that even being said, you know, one thing we we didn't touch on, but I do believe is very influential in the actual feeding of colubrids is incubation, um, because I think what happens for some of this respective of incubation temperatures is animals may hatch out much smaller from which they should be, which may lead to an animal that's going to decline faster because yep. it's burned up all of its respective um, yolk during the actual incubation process much faster, 
where you know it'll be interesting to see the data from incubating at different temperatures to see how that yolk retention is actually um, leads to better growth of animals. Um, but you know, I incubate at lower temperatures. Um, I have found that my colubrids do hatch out much larger and accept larger meals. Um, but and I I've gone down this avenue because I've played with different things over the years. Um, as Zach mentioned, I mean, I used to incubate in hovabator, um, <laughs> just chicken egg incubators. And the only reason I moved away from that uh, this year was because uh, Billy um, kind of pushed me onto these uh, mainstream incubators, which I'm playing around with this year, still learning <laughs> stuff. Um, but, you know, respective, you know, there's a lot of things that really kind of contribute to that because when you get to the feeding part, if the animal is too small to feed on a prey item, they may resist it just because of the incubation that they've had. Um, same thing, you know, kind of vice versa off of that is, you know, within that Jacobson organ, you know, those animals, when you're seeing that tongue flicking, going in and out, and I mean, really, we could go deep on yeah. that, but that's like a huge another tangent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mega <laughs> of, tangent. Uh, biology and neurosensory. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, animals are smart. Um, you know, when you're looking at the eye of an animal, you can tell that they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Not to go back to Jurassic Park with velociraptors, mm-hmm. but they're definitely trying to figure things out. Yep. Um, so if, you know, with rodents, um, we kind of picked up in, I don't know, do you want to dive into now different feeding strategies? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, so one little thing I would um, add to what you were saying, though, is mm-hmm. what what Taylor's thesis is really looking at with the two temperature sizes, and we will talk about this. And when the results are in, we're totally going to have a combo, maybe even an episode dedicated to it, because I have people tell me this whole time. But when you're looking at the the size of the baby coming out the egg, in biology we talk about fitness, and so if your fitness is high, that basically means that you have a very high likelihood of survival. And if your fitness is low, you have a lessened likelihood of survival. So we as humans have this general idea that the bigger the baby, the more fit it is. And there's almost certainly truth to that in a captive environment. We can totally speak to the captive environment. And in the wild, you know, if you're itty bitty, that might actually be fit because you're it's easier for you to hide and you're not going to be as noticeable. And you know, the predators are going to pick off the big baby that's clumsy and, and easy to grab. But we're not in the wild. We're in basements and spare bedrooms, like you said. Um, and what we're most interested in when we breed a snake and get a, and, and get the offspring is we want a baby that is going to survive and is being brutally honest is going to not be a pain in the ass. Let's just be real. Um, and given what we have available to us as far as foods are concerned the bigger the colubrid baby that's going to be starting on baby mice the more baby mice there are available to it because when we talk about pinkies you know there's small pinkies there's red hots which are supposedly smaller than small pinkies though we've gotten quite a few red hots in and i'm doing air quotes that were bigger than our small pinkies so that might be a little bit of a I'm not going to go down that tangent. <laughs> so anyway, um, and so one of the things that I know is like when I have the corns and, and even the hogs, hogs are a great example of this because they come out kind of small normally. 
um, we want to have an, uh, an offspring in this herpetoculture realm that's able to eat the food that we have readily available to give them. And so that's why incubation is important, trying to figure out how to get a bigger, better baby out of an egg, which is going to lead to increased captive fitness. That's what we're calling it. Uh, so when it comes to actually presenting the mice, let's really quickly just go over. I mean, you already did to a certain degree. The, the presentation, there is a term that I would like to, to define. I remember hearing this term. I think I heard it from um, when Justin and Jake were interviewing Nipper the first time when they were talking about Boiga and he was talking about drop feeding and being that I'm a professor that loves to latch on to terms that I can then teach and hold my students responsible for, I immediately was like, what the hell is drop feeding? I don't know what the hell drop feeding is. And then come to find out that it's a practice we all do. We just don't readily necessarily define it as drop feeding. So most people are going to take their, their neonate, you know, first time they're offering food, they're going to do the deli cup idea that you'd mentioned the brown bag idea which has been around literally forever um and then you're going to take the pinky put it in close to the young the the, the neonate and then close up container let it go and you're going to interact with that offspring as little as humanly possible because you are the giant food monkey that's going to scare the living snot out of it because it has no clue that you're there to save it as far as it's concerned everything in its dna is telling you that you're about to eat it so um, is that how you would define drop feeding? It's just simply taking a prey item, presenting it, and walking away. Hence, you drop the food in front of the offspring. Or do you have a, a different definition? So drop feeding, I think, can be identified in a couple of different ways. Um, typically, the way that was introduced drop feeding to myself was actually in Again, this, this goes into a couple of different tangents of how you can offer food to as well. And drop feeding was always introduced to me as you have the animal exposed, so it's not underneath a hide or shelter, and you actually start to not aggressively tease the animal, but identify that the food prey item is there and drop it in front of the animal's uh, mouth because that animal now has the sight of it. And by dropping it directly in front of the animal or actually hitting the animal by like with tongs, like just <laughs> tapping and drop it. That's how drop feeding was actually introduced to me again. Interesting. That was from a zookeeper. Mm -hmm. That's what was identified. I could even go down some other tangents that <laughs> may or might not be of interest here because there, there is some, um, from my background, from uh, sensory neurology as well as some anatomy and physiology there are other aspects or avenues of attribute to um strike behavior mm -hmm. too as well because um one of the other things that i found very interesting um is kind of the introduction of tongs yeah. to the hobby or hemostats um now this was actually presented to me by a zookeeper and i i I don't I'm sure I'm fine to say this, but um, and this is also something that's very interesting to see Robin Marklin introducing different hemostats and tongs to the, the hobby itself is they actually felt and thought that the actual silver 
nature of the common hemostats that you know we're we're taking from the medical industry to use in this was actually creating glares and actually um, may have actually restricted an animal from feeding properly and from that because the mm. acuity of the vision and the eye they felt that the way that the light might actually reflect off of it may actually take away from the introduction of the prey item at the end of the tongue and might actually be stressing the animal during the introduction of feeding that's interesting well. um huh. again hasn't been proven but what was interesting is that zookeeper was a keeper in the 70s and 80s, and he told me that they used to spray paint their tongs black. Um, so there obviously must have been some correlation to this, too, as well, to go as far as to spray paint tongs <laughs> black. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, I mean, that's why, you know, looking at Robin's um, black tongs, I I find very interesting because I do use them within my collection and you know there's no reflection off of it and it kind of goes back to what that zookeeper was kind of identifying prospectively of that because if you did had you know or had a neonate that might want to be introduced prey items by teasing in yep. front of them to promote a strike feeding response you may actually if that animal wasn't feeding, you may actually have more factors or variables inside of this than what you actually thought yeah. for the feeding response or behavior. That's interesting. I, I was... And now I think you've got a, a yeah, there new, you go. Uh, project. Project number 398. <laughs> <laughs> I was always... Yeah, that's interesting you were taught that because I was taught that the drop feeding was passive. So you open, drop, close, get out. So it's a very passive action. And then the introduction of the food, that's where the tease feeding comes into play, which is a very active action. So you're basically yeah. trying to piss the snake off or elicit a feeding response by grabbing the prey item and kind of putting it near the snake. And I can say, and we were talking about tease feeding in a minute, I've learned that when that, that the general population of people, when you say, all right, you feed snakes by presenting the prey item to them, um, that is interpreted today as I grab the prey item and I shove it into its face and I wiggle, 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 because I have watched quite literally hundreds of suicide students do this. And I now know that we do not instruct people to feed that way. And you have to really kind of walk them through the process uh, that seems relatively straightforward and simple, um, but all that I all that you got to do to get people to realize that this is probably stressing them the hell out is just ask them like if I was going to feed if you were going to eat a chicken breast and I grab the tongs to grab the chicken breast and then shove that thing in your face and start you know smacking your nose with it are you going to eat or are you going to sit back and be like what the hell is going on so anyway uh, alrighty so uh, with with the presentation then. You know, we've kind of gone over that. It, it's not necessarily active unless we get to assist slash tease feeding, which we're going to talk about at the end of the episode. But I have a, a list of strategies here. And our, our good friend, Clint, I, we put up that we were recording this and he had a statement, which we'll be hit, getting to on scenting here in a second. Um, but there's all kinds of strategies to, to employ once you have that infamous feeder that's now not eating. So we're, we're moving on to the realm of, okay, our, our presentation didn't work. The animal's not eating, and it's it's you know, 
it's not eating. So first thing we got to get out of the way is how many non-feeding events does it take to then initiate this list of, of strategies that we're about to discuss? That's a question that I know I always wonder, like, is it, oh, crap, the thing didn't eat the first time? Or is it, oh, crap, it, I've tried 10 times now and it's not eating. So what's the magic number for you? Yeah. So, so really, you know, getting into non-feeding animals, mm -hmm. um, to is it really goes into that homeostasis aspect yep. because things can go bad real fast, yes. um, respective of, uh, colubrids, you know, a lot of people, I think, especially some, um, non-specialized keepers, maybe that might be getting into, for instance, like Asian rat snakes for the first time. Asian rat snakes are very different from North American colubrids. And if homeostasis is off, mm -hmm. you're not feeding those yep. animals. Um, but because tiny colubrids do have a relatively higher metabolism because they're going to put on some significant size during their first couple of months, if the animal itself has not fed consecutively three times, mm -hmm. that is when I start to actually employ some of these different strategies. Okay. Um, now, with that being said, um, one strategy that I somewhat continuously do um, and I think it might have become now a habitual um, aspect of my avenue of preparing rodents yeah. for feeding is for all pinkies that I offer within my collection, I actually wash all pinkies. All right. And part of that is a personal decision that I've made for consistency within the respective collection. And by washing, I, I made like this little funny TikTok thing and posted it once before, but all I do is literally take a plastic deli container, I'll put the pinkies inside of there, I'll run cold water and then drop, you know, a few drops, maybe just a squeeze of Blue Dawn dish soap. Okay. I don't know what it is about Blue Dawn <laughs> dish soap, but there's no fragrance to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll run the water for a little bit and I'll let them sit in the water. And the, the reason and aspect of or avenue of why I've continuously done this is if you ever leave a bag of um, pinkies out to defrost just by air, you sometimes will pick up a natural odor of uh, ammonia yep. or urine, or um, sometimes you'll pick up some bedding scent. Um, and a lot of rodent breeders will house their um, rodents on pine. And pine has a very fragrant yeah. smell. And the reason why they do that, um, having bred rodents commercially, is purely to absorb the ammonia smell because it is very overbearing. Yes. Um, it is absolutely so, overbearing. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I don't breed rodents. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a, a part of that and part of my habitual na nature off of that was I've started to do this and I, I did, I started this last year as a consistency basis um, and I've kept with it. And part of it is just because I think in some avenues, the suppliers or um, aspect of where we're getting some of these rodents, there may be a odor to the rodent, which may actually cause them to actually refuse the respective rodent based on the smell mm -hmm. of that prey item. Um, so I do that now with all hatchlings, just habitually. Um, braining is a unique strategy yes. and one that 
I think some keepers do not do properly. Um, so this is definitely a gross aspect of uh, it, but yeah. if it has to happen, it has to happen. And, and I think part of the braining nature, you also want to combine with the washing of Dawn dish soap. And I say that because you may have still that strong urine odor or fragrance from the rodent that you can't get rid of. So by braining, what you end up doing, at least this is how I do it, um, Zach, you know, obviously yeah. fill in your preferential aspect of it, but I take a razor blade or a scalpel and I'll incite a just small hole on the respective brain of the pinky or skull of the pinky and squeeze up on the actual head just a little bit to get a little juice yep. of the actual brain material. Like a pimple. Um, <laughs> and from that, yep. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the pimple pop. Yes. Show, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but by... <laughs> so it, it is a little... It goes a little bit beyond, but I think the aspect or avenue that should be discussed here is you don't need to squeeze the whole brain out. You just want a little um, incision off of there to push a little bit out because what you're trying to do is basically cover up any sort of smell that might have been on the rodent. And by providing that extra fluid, that animal thinks it's a fresher prey item. Kind of going into why people use red hots, um, typically as live red hots, is because that animal will still have some of the placenta um, respective on its, its body and makes it a little bit more attractable for that snake. Yeah, and what all this is getting down to is you're basically trying to get rid of all of the artificial anthropogenically mediated scents. So all the, the, the odors that are associated with the, the industrial rearing of the rodents, um, the... Uh, the, the pine bedding oils, uh, you know, things like that. That's why you're doing the Dawn is basically, I don't think it's the soap smell. And as you said, it's, you can totally get odorless um, Dawn dish soap, but it, it basically hitting it with the Dawn, which is going to release all the, the lipids and the oils and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you're, ba you're then presenting to the baby colubrid, a chemo chemicals that are, basically allied with a baby mouse and that's the only chemicals they're going to smell and then when you end up braining it you're also you're you're kind of increasing those odors uh why the brain is so important i don't know i often wondered if you poked a little hole in the abdomen will you get the same response um i think that we do the brain just simply because it's it's easy it's that you know you can obviously see the head you can use a pin some people go so far as to like literally cut the thing's head in half and expose all that and I, I think that's probably gone a little too far there but um uh but you also have your babies that probably want that so it's kind of up to you as the keeper to discern what you're doing uh one thing that i have done so i've, I've had a couple clutches of snakes that drove me absolutely insane nothing equivalent to what you've dealt with but bear and i baron's racers have been the bane of my existence to get them to start which is really weird because with Baron's racers, they go from like, yeah, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to die the one time. And then they have ravenous appetites the rest of their lives. I've never had snakes that go from not eating to eating 
like two completely different ends of a spectrum. And then the pairs or lines of tricolor hogs, which we've talked about before. Um, I do not have the experience you do getting those little <laughs> bastards to eat. Let's just be real. Um, and I actually talked to a couple tri hog breeders while I was working on the book and they, I think there's some truth to it. They, they've mentioned, and I think I've said this before that there could very well be lines of tricolors that are more conducive, like hatching, post-hatching, they eat readily and other lines don't. And I had just generic animals because I was just buying what I could. And I don't think, I know I didn't have the lines that ate, but the things I had to do to get them to eat were crazy. And one thing that I have done with the, the set, I got so desperate that I just was like, well, screw it. I'm going to throw a brained pink in there, a washed pink in there, a pink straight out of the bag in there and just give them choice. And then I used the brown paper bag trick. Uh, that was suggested to me for the bear and I, and it, it does seem to work well with them. Um, and then I threw the, the baby snake in there and it seems a little counterintuitive because you've got that whole chemical environment going, but at the same time, uh, I have a kid that will only eat chicken fingers and hamburgers. So I learned a long time ago that diversity is the spice of life. And I just present to Colin all the options and he'll eat one. And that was literally where I got the idea for this. And um, the last time we had Bear and I, our troublesome feeders, that was my strategy, which was offering them all, like offering three, three different forms of a pink chemically. And they ultimately ate. And it was interesting because one, one like the brained, pink one like the dawn pink but neither like the pink right out of the pinky bag straight out of the freezer so it did show that there was some manipulation and then another thing that was interesting and i have no clue if this is anything but anybody that's dealt with baby colubrids you almost get superstitious once things start working um is that i did find that i when i let the animals initially thaw out at room temperature versus just thawing the mice out. Um, and I let them thaw out as individuals and I washed them as individuals. And then I presented them that seemed to elicit the feeding response than trying to do it. Like from an industrial point of view, I'm going to thaw out all 50 pinks at once. I don't know if that matters at all, but in, in the case of the bear and I last year, it did. So it appeared to, I'm not going to say it did. It appeared to, that's the better way to say that. So we have um, the braining. We've discussed that washing with Dawn uh let's move on to the other thing we do with pinkies which is the which is boiling them so when and why does somebody yeah. take that, a pinky mouse just and boil? Add, add to your comment <laughs> sure go for it yeah well zach one thing i want to add as a commentary to what you mentioned about the lines is that actually mm -hmm. got brought up too as well when we had um chad on too as well yeah and i do I do have to say, you know, respective, even when I offer animals for the general public, I typically don't do individual pictures of animals. And the reason why is the animals that I offer, if I was the person pursuing them, I would want the animals that are the best feeders. So yeah. those are always the animals that I first present to people when they're actually inquiring. Um, but I do believe that there is very much a lot of truth to having good feeding animals and the acquisition of those animals respective oh, yeah. to pursuing bloodlines. Um, but yeah, so boiling pinks. Um, this one, 
this trick per se, I don't know necessarily if this is actually something that's beneficial to colubrids, um, but a lot of people do think that it is um, an avenue. I, I, what you end up doing two ways um, I've seen it done is some people will actually take a bag of pinkies and put them on the stove and boil yeah. water um, and get those animals like red hot. The other aspect of it is you get scorching hot water from your faucet and you run the container with your rodents inside of it and basically scorch them that way. Um, with that being said, I mean, really what you're ending up doing is manipulating the smell of the animal too as well be as the breakdown of the tissue is going to expose, you know, more um, aroma or pheromones off of that rodent from that smell. The one aspect where I don't necessarily think that this has a lot of promotion within colubrids specifically is just because of the thermal gradient of how these predators or prey items might be offered. I think there has more to do with scent yep. than actual heat for the colubrids specifically. But again, everyone's got their own thing. I'm habitual about the blue Dawn dish. Um, <laughs> Your team Dawn. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and off of that, I think that kind of brings us to, before I get into scenting, I typically will try a live prey item. Okay. Um, so, and, and typically what you're, trying to do there is elicit some behavior based on just natural cues of movement um, because certain reptilia respond better to the movement of the prey um, so you know in terms of respective strategy I'll, I'll, at the end when we talk about non-feeders what my preferential is and we'll see how close we mm -hmm. line up zach on that one but one thing that i've actually been getting more in tune to and i think it actually has a lot more presentation in this type of manner is alternative food types and i think the problem that comes in here is you know we have to understand the natural biology of these respective animals and what they're feeding on to as well in the wild um, i think there also has a lot to do with the lineage of animals mm -hmm. so you know like an f1 versus like in corn snakes, F1000. <laughs> yeah. Like we're on the thousandth <laughs> generation of them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, certain animals are going to seek out um, prey items that are more in tune to their um, natural biology. You know, for instance, um, I, I have some of the bird eating snakes, yeah. the uh, susties. Mm -hmm. And What's interesting is a lot of people in the past have presented those animals as requiring force feeding of pinkies, whereby basically shoving that animal with a pinky down its throat. Yes. Um, I'm not a fan of force feeding. Um, what's interesting, though, is from talking to, you know, some reputable breeders of those, I come to find that all I have to do is boil an egg and take the hard-boiled egg crumble it up and put it in the cage and the animal eats there you go so now i've taken away force feeding scenting tease feeding and creating a lot more stress on an animal by just offering them what the prey item that respective animal is seeking um also breeding rhino rat snakes um 
you know, in the past, and, and we've talked about this, and Rob Stone has talked about this, um, you know, one of the things I moved away from was an early article that Rob had published respective of force-feeding baby rhinos. And when you look at their biology and, and being, I guess, blessed as well as yourself, being able to go to museums and spend time there, mm -hmm. you typically get a lot more information than what the hobby presents because you can look at stomach contents of animals that are within the private collection, in their wet collection. And when I was at the Field mm -hmm. Museum of Natural History um, doing an internship, um, that was something that I was very interested in and found that their stomach contents were tadpoles and fish. Um, yeah. So I started to, and it makes very, very good sense of an animal's yeah. natural biology to be a brown snake as a neonate blending in with uh, leaf litter in the, the stream. And, you know, the respective nature of that animal feeding in those streams is going to prevent its fitness or promote its fitness yep. of survival. So in that species, particularly, um, I would get minnows and take live minnows, put a frozen thawed pink in the actual water bowl, and the animal's going to eat both. Yes. Because it's seeing things swimming, it's going to strike it, you're good, move on. And then over time, you can move away from the fish prey item. Um, a strategy a lot of people don't want to take is what I'll talk about with snake eating snakes <laughs> is, and we've, we talked about this, uh, in the last episode, but obviously I keep two different file snake species. I keep cross-eye and capensis mm -hmm. and the cross-eye, I have never had those animals as difficult in terms of getting them for feeding behavior to feed on rodents. Um, capes, my original capes, are wild caught. And again, I think this goes into lines as well as um, frequency and lineage of captive breeding in the hobby. But for 50% of the cape files that I hatch each year, I have to initiate their first meal as a live corn snake. Um, once that phase is moved forward, so, and there must be something dietary respective of that that triggers their, um, digestive system then to start seeking out other prey items. But once they've had that first, uh, corn snake, then they start eating frozen thawed pink. That's interesting. Um, I have tried set. Yeah. I, I have tried what we'll kind of talk about here shortly is the scenting aspect with them too as well, but I have found a better feeding response respective of the corn snakes. Um, you know, and this is also true respective of, um, and this really doesn't play a role here for this, but maybe we might have some boaed keepers listening, is for um, baby viper boas, um, Stan Grumbeck, is one of the people that I know that has had continuous huh. success with breeding those in, in the hobby. But he is only able to get the hatchling started by feeding cricket frogs. Huh. Um, has tried scenting, has tried different um, washing techniques, but the relative nature of it has been the food item of which the animal is actually seeking out gets the animal going. 
That's interesting. I, I, so, go ahead. Yeah. No. Okay. I, I um with all these crazy South American xenodontids that I keep, uh, they all want some. They either want fish or they want frogs. Like that. Everything about their biology is. I live in a wetland. That's the most abundant vertebrate. That's what I'm going to be eating. And uh, I have found with the yellow belly lyophis, uh, which is a passion project of mine. Um, Yasser is the only person to produce them that I know of last year. Uh, and as soon as he did, I was like, me, 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 because I desperately need a male. And so I've um, managed to fortunately get quite a few animals from him in hopes of one of them being a male because they're too small to sex. Uh, but what was interesting is in the shipping from Yasser on the Pacific coast to me in West Virginia, it, it went, they basically, they shut down. They didn't like something about my setup here, which is identical to his setup initially made them stop eating. And whenever that happens with me, with a baby, I just think about the biology of the animal. And there, there are some instinctual behavioral responses to prey that if we can kind of elicit those responses in these little guys, we can get them eating again. And so I tried my little diced up microscopically chunks of tilapia and one's been a champ and the other five, from what I could tell, no eating. And then I went to tilapia and catfish to go for a different chemical cue. Same little guy is like growing like a weed. The other ones aren't eating. And so um, I did that. Then I left them alone, moved them up to school where the temperature is better uh, for them because I try to keep them at ambient. And then we have uh, strategically put feeder guppies throughout. There's a lot of fish tanks, for lack of a better word, because of my crayfish lab. Uh, I think I have over 50 in my lab. So lots of places to grow guppies. So we buy feeder guppies and just drop them in every tank that we can drop them in in hopes of one of those tanks meeting the dimensions to have them explode. And, of course, it's the Cayman tank. That's where we have all the guppies, by the way. It's not, you know, it's not the tanks that have the crayfish in them. It's the one that has the freaking crocodilian. But anyway, um, I, I didn't introduce any um, tilapia catfish for two weeks. Against my better, you know, it, it was painful. I... Just kept thinking they need to eat. All the little guys survived. And then I got a bunch of um, gravid, chunky guppies, gambusia, and, and put them in a water in their water bowl with just enough water to cover their backs. So as they're freaking out, they've got that visual cue. And then I came in the next morning, and I believe I had 10 guppies in the dish. All 10 guppies are gone, and every single one of those little guys have eaten, and now I've got them going again. Um, so, you know, there's definitely something to be said to the live food. Uh, another thing that we all need to think about is this is where we can kind of get into one of the major underlying themes of our podcast, which is read, 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 read. Um, if you actually read about the biology, these snakes undergo, um, a lot of people know what this means, ont ontogenic changes or shifts. And even corn snakes, standard herpetoculture species in nature, when they hatch, their primary forage are ectotherms. They're eating lizards. Um, they're eating frogs. Uh, uh, there's feeding records of them eating um, grasshoppers and crickets. You know, today, if you hatch a 
double snow, purple hippopotamus, het, whatever the hell, you're not going to think, I'm going to feed it a cricket frog. But, uh, and, and we've kind of probably bred that out of them by just presenting them pinkies after pinky after pinky for successive generations. But if you have a corn snake that doesn't go, yeah. these alternative food strategies may may work. Now, the problem with feeding things like frogs, specifically frogs, is Mama Nature figured out that damn near everything will eat a frog. So the parasites know if I can get into a frog, now this is like the ultimate intermediate host. Because if I get, if I'm a tapeworm larvae and I get into the frog, I have the potential to get into a raccoon, a possum, a hawk, a water snake, a pit viper, a bass. And so because of that, they're infested with parasites. So you just kind of have to like, take that into consideration because a lot of people are like, hell no, I'm not feeding my snakes frogs. Uh, but if you have a snake and you want it to go feeding it, that, that live frog or tadpole or, or guppy, the guppies are loaded with flukes, by the way. Um, my way of looking at this is I just want the things to eat. I, yeah, I can, I can attest to how difficult it is to secure yellow belly lyophis. And I have them. So I'm going to get them going. I'm going to do a fecal later on in life. Once, you know, they're stable, I'll look at the parasites. I'll work with my vet. I'll figure out what I'm going to do. Um, but for some people, live food's kind of the boogeyman when it goes outside of being a pinky. Uh, but, you know, your pinkies can have nematodes, peeps. Strongaloides is in there. So don't necessarily think that they're the most sterile things on on planet Earth. Um but no, the live food's important because you're you're initiating behavioral cues that that snake is born with. Uh, I can also say with Nerodia and um, baby garter snakes, man, uh, I put a video up on social media of when I had the Florida's last, or sorry, the Broadbanded's last year, um, and I kept them all together, and I put 50 guppies into a feeding, a little water dish for their initial feeding, and they were all gone in like two and a half minutes. <laughs> and after that, yeah, they ate tilapia and pinks, pink parts. And that's what they've been fed up till now. I know some other people have them and that's what they're feeding that I gave those offspring to. But um, I, I was having problems initiating a strong feeding response until I gave them the live fish. And then, good golly, it was it was impressive. So that's something, you know. To, to be taken into to account, but it's important to think about the ontogeny of your snake. Um, because a lot of oh, the rhinos are a great example. That's an animal that as a, a juvenile is eating ectotherms and then it reaches adulthood and it does a complete swap to endothermic prey. I, I think it's disingenuous for us to label a species of snake difficult. If we're literally trying to force down its throat, what is easy for us, uh, you know, once we figure that, take that into consideration, I think we become better keepers. So, all right. No, I agree with you 100%. I mean, because <laughs> it's easier, it's definitely easier to get animals feeding when you understand the natural biology of the animal. But it's also a lot easier once the animal is feeding established to treat for parasites should you yes. believe that the parasite load is necessary to treat. Exactly. Be and one day we'll, we'll have to do an episode on um, 
parasites and respective um, viruses because I think there's a lot to be said here. Oh too, yeah, as well. Totally. Um. So, I guess the last aspect of for non-feeders that we'll touch on, and this is something you have to take into consideration because they're by doing scenting, you could actually promote um, harder things to overcome later mm -hmm. on within keeping of a species. But respective of scenting, you you first want to wash the respective prey item entirely. Yes. You want to get rid of any sort of uh, Q pheromones from that uh, prey item. Now, scenting can go along a few different lines. Um, I have done the blender trick where I took a whole bunch of anoles once and put them into a bullet blender to create a paste. Um, not saying you should do that, and obviously make sure before all of that is even <laughs> transpired that the animals are euthanized and um, done taking care of pride in that respect. But typically the first scenting technique that I, I go about with is tuna. Yes. Um, so I typically would buy a can of tuna, um, and I would drain all of the respective juice or water from that tuna can into an ice tray. And I would typically use an ice tray because what I end up doing as a um, means of just ease of use is I'll take that ice tray with the tuna juice inside of it and drop a couple pinkies in each one of the respective areas because when I go to feed, in a future date, I can just grab that cube out and defrost the cube itself oh, nice. for that scent. So a nice, nice little trick, um, trick of the trade as, as a means. And if you have a wife or girlfriend <laughs> or kids, they probably want to be warned that you have that in the freezer before they go to pop one and drop it in their soda. Um, but that's typically the first avenue. So again, I take, allow the prey item to soak in the tuna juice. If you're, if you're a person like me where I may want to have this already prepared, the ice tray works out great. Um, That's a good trick. And you want to let that, yeah, so, and, and then you want to let that prey item soak in that juice, typically for about an hour to really pull in that flavor. Um, Can I ask a quick question? I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah. Are you washing them with the Dawn before you put them into the scent? Correct. Okay. So cool. you want to remove any sort of odor or scent um, and typically done by the dog. Um, the other aspect is with scenting for um, king snakes or for um, lizard eaters or other snake eaters, you can also take a different approach. Again, with any scenting, you're going to have to wash the respective animal first. But Within the reptile um, hobby, you probably have friends that may have been breeding geckos or mm -hmm. other snakes. or So another tip or trick that you can do is to actually take the respective shed skin mm -hmm. from one of those prey items. Um, and this works very good for king snakes. And you can take the um, shed skin from a corn snake or something of that nature and just take a layer of it and wrap it around the respective pinky. And now that scent, which hopefully best works if it's a fresh set, 
but by wrapping it around, it now has the pheromones from that respective snake for the feeding behavior. Um, another option for scenting with um, the hognose community, or at least this was a trick that was told to me with Western hogs early on. I don't know if I would approach it this way ever again, but um, what they would end up doing was taking human hair um, or like a thread of human hair and actually tying a piece of a frog to the respective pinky to as well after it's been washed so that the oil or um, the tissue from the frog is more representative on there and that the human hair, you know, if you took it from a brush, wouldn't have any sort of string or anything and would be easily digested <laughs> just because of the collagen from the nature of the hair. Um, That's interesting. So that was a trick too, kind of scenting, kind of slash adding a flavor. Um, the other avenue or approach that you can do, and I'm not sure if this is what Clint was identifying, but there's two ways to scenting a container that works well. Um, is obviously all of these animals are producing some sort of pheromone. Um, mm -hmm. within them you know lizards sometimes you'll see them rubbing their cloaca on glass or anything of that nature you what you can do is actually introduce that respective animal to a container and leave them in that container for several hours or a week or what have you and afterwards remove that animal introduce a prey item and then also introduce the respective um animal that is being introduced oh so and typically that will elicit some response because that animal is going to be using its jacobson organ to smell around the container pulling up any sort of oil or scent in there you can do that with or without substrate my preference is typically if i'm going that level more than likely i'm going to be just removing the animal from that container and plopping yeah. in the animal and just calling it a day but that's a way to scent a container. Um, I've also seen, and, and I know some people do this too as well, is they will take their washed pinky, so whipped on dish soap, and if they had frogs or lizards, what they'll end up doing is just taking that prey item and rubbing it across the back mm -hmm. of the respective. Yeah, I've done this before. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm 50-50 I'm mm -hmm. on this one, but... Um, it is something I think scenting the container and potentially doing that also may also elicit a better response to it. Um, but that's scenting in a nutshell. Yeah, I can um, speak a little bit to scenting for things that eat frogs because mm -hmm. producing a hundred plus false water cobras in a year for the past three years and they want frogs. Like when they come out of the egg, they they're, we're not to like F three, four, five generations with those guys. And I can flat out tell you that when we offer the pinks um, or the fuzzies, because they're big enough to take fuzzies, that's what we normally offer them. Um, about thirty percent will totally eat. They'll eat a mouse right off the bat because they have such a diverse diet. But uh, if we scent with with frog. I can get upwards of 100%. In fact, this was the first year, I believe, I had a clutch of around 30 of them, and every single neonate ate but one. And that's the best record I've ever had. So what I used to do in the past is I would wait until it rained in April or May, 
and then I would drive around and find intact road-killed frogs. Um, and usually I would shoot for a bullfrog, small bullfrog, um, or green frogs because they're not toxic. And this is where you have to know your frogs because if you do this with a pickerel frog, it's bad. Or you do this with a toad, it's real bad. So uh, anyway, I would shoot for them. Then I would bring them home. And I'm not talking about like plastered. The, the animals could be turned into a specimen in a jar if need be. That I, The ones that have a tendency to be kind of dumb and have, the car has passed them and then they rock it into the side of the car and die. That's like, that's bueno. That's what, you're, what I was looking for. And so I would get two or three of those. Like you, I, I bought a dedicated bullet blender. For Zeus, I do not use your family blender for this. Uh, and then I was horrified about parasites because these, you know, I, I just explained it. These things are loaded with, with stuff. And so then I would dissect out the gastrointestinal tract completely. So there's no esophagus, stomach, intestines in there at all. That's just completely removed. I would leave in the liver, the lungs, the heart, you know, with the organ meat stuff, the skin. And then um, take that, add a little bit of water to the blender, throw the frogs into the blender. It is amazing how you can go from a frog to paste in like half a second with those ninja blenders. It'll change your life. Probably not for the better. Uh, but anyway, I would do that. Blend it up. It looks exactly like a smoothie. It has the consistency of a smoothie. That's what I was shooting for. And then I would take that and freeze it rock solid for like a month or two. And that's going to kill some of the parasites, but it's not going to kill all the parasites. Um, then with those ninja blenders, you've got the cup that you kind of screw the lid down on. I would simply keep that slurry, and that's the best way to describe it, in there. And then take out the fuzzies, throw them into the cup, and like you said, just let them marinate in the frog juices and it was amazing how strong a feeding response I would get out of the hydrodynasties when you would offer them that versus just a normal pink. And then each successive feeding for the next five feedings, we had less and less and less of this, what I refer to as the frog glaze, because that's basically what it is. And then by like that fifth feeding, they're eating pinkies that aren't even unscented. Um, this year, uh, like I said, I was... Really, I just did not like the idea of taking wild frogs. You know, there's there's issues all over the place with that. And uh, I believe it was last fall. We have a fish market here in Wheeling called Coleman's Fish Market. If you've ever been to Wheeling, you know it. It's like the one rest, one of a handful of restaurants we're known for. And I was walking the back way into the market where you go past the glass cases. And I looked down and they had frog legs. And I was like, oh, my God, these have been like frozen for months. They're, you know, skin. There's no guts in there. I wonder if they'll work. So this year I went to Coleman's, bought the frog legs, um, took them up, threw them in the blender. And when you know it, worked exactly the same, got the exact same feeding response. Uh, and now I don't have to worry about um, the parasite load because these things have been like frozen rock salad for quite some time. Uh and so in that regard, I was able to, to get the snakes to eat. Uh, I've also taken frog legs and just dissected out strips of meat. Uh, and sure enough, the frog eaters that I have, they eat those things like crazy. I This isn't a baby, but I had a Madagascan hognose snake. Um, I, when I purchased it, the 
person said it feeds religiously on rodents. Uh, I didn't get the thing to eat a rodent once, um, but uh, I was able to take those same frog legs, cut them down the middle because they usually come in a pair. And that snake has now, that's all it eats. I just add some nutrients to it. I don't have to worry. It takes them right off the tongs. It won't touch a rodent. So um, frog legs from the store, I think, are a very valid option that we all need to explore a little bit for all of our frog feeders. And that's how I do the, the scenting. Uh, and it works like a charm. I, given that I love things that live in aquatic environment, like my aquatic snakes, frogs are an ever-present thing. And then the, another thing that we can kind of talk about just real quickly that's worth exploring with things that want to eat um, rodents, there's the various reptile sausages. Uh, Reptilinx is a company that's well-known. Some people you know, live and die by these things. Other people don't really like them. They do offer a bunch of scents. I can flat out tell you that the scents that they sell do work. They have a lizard scent, a frog scent. Um, they have like a knoll, gecko. Uh, I think that those are well worth trying, especially if you're working with an animal that wants to eat uh, those animals when it comes fresh out of the egg. Uh, so just something to think about. So, um, that's what I had to add. Yeah. Anything on the Reptilinks scenting angle that you want to contribute, or are we ready to move on to the last part of this discussion? No, I, I think that's, I think that's good. Um, I have purchased those scents too as well. I, I've never purchased the sausages, but, um, you know, I think it is an avenue to try and explore too as well, because then you don't have to get the blender. Yes. Yeah, you don't have to watch that frog turn to a pink. <laughs> it looks like a strawberry milkshake, peeps. For those of you who aren't going to do this, you need to know what it looks like. Uh, changes your life. There's a frog, oh, yeah. then there's not a frog. and you, Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. So oh, final man. topic, and we, we left it for the end because this is an interesting discussion. Um, and that is all right. You've tried all of the above. And by the way, there's plenty of other strategies. When we post this up on our, our social pages, if you want to add to the discussion beneath the episode post of things you've done, you know, we're all about education here. So by all means, share it. Uh, but we have assist and force feeding. And uh, I'm going to take a page out of my herpetoculture class before we go further, because I, in the course, I view this as two different things under a similar umbrella. So with assist feeding, what I always think of is you are assisting the snake in feeding. So you are basically, you are, this is probably the most uh, intrusive thing we've discussed, but you're, in my mind's eye, you're taking the snake, you're opening its mouth, and you're placing the prey item into the mouth, or you're, you're holding onto the snake and you're eliciting a defensive response so that it bites onto a prey item. But for me, assist feeding is you're basically assisting the prey item to the mouth and then you quit. And once you get it to the snake's mouth, if, if you know, it's going to then spit out the prey item or it's going to eat it. And when it eats it, you've assisted it in the feeding process. And so you have you know, assist feeding. Force feeding is you get to that point. It keeps habitually spitting it out. Um, it sits there with the prey item in its mouth and won't swallow, and it just reaches this, like, catatonic state. And with force feeding, you're going to go so far as to actually manually deliver the prey into the snake's stomach. 
Uh, and before we go any further, this is intrusive. I got into a debate once with somebody. He was like, oh, it's not intrusive. I was like, it's intrusive. <laughs> um, but, you know, for some specimens, it's necessary. There is a whole discussion, which we are, for the sake of time, probably not going to get into, which is the ethics of, like, keeping that animal alive in a captive environment. Do we really want to get that that individual to a point where it's able to pass these genes on, which might, you know, we just discussed this with the lions of the tricolor hognose snakes. Um, that's not for today. We're just discussing assist feeding, force feeding. So Matt, when is a situation when, when, when how do you make the call? All right, we're going to move on to assist feeding. All right. So I am of the nature of you either eat or you die. Yeah, there you <laughs> so, go. Um, <laughs> that, that, that is not, not to call animals, but, um, to respective of this for assist and force feeding, this is something I would be very cautious on as mm-hmm. a new keeper. Um, and it's something that I'm always very, very cautious in, in terms of how to explain it and how to do it. Um, because a lot of people do it very wrong and you can injure an animal very fast. Um, especially with snakes, with the way the yeah. teeth are designed and the respective nature of the jaw and the muscles that, um, also are respective theirs and including the larynx too as well because as as zach mentioned and you know some people that listen or have talked to me you know my background i'm i'm trained as an anatomist and studying the anatomy of reptilia and humans too um is very different and you can create a lot of injuries to an animal very very fast here Mm -hmm. um so with that even being said, with assist feeding of animals, as Zach mentioned, you, you do want to elicit a response to the respective animal to essentially ent- gain entry to the mouth itself for the respective rodent. Um, typically, if I'm in this um, avenue or approach, you know, I want to not grab the animal from the jaw and pull the jaw and then try to shove something down. Um, you know, there are means of doing that, but the natural instinct of biting is what you really want the animal to do. So with that being said, um, typically I would restrain the animal or snake itself behind the actual head, take the pinky and rub it across the mouth and see if the animal itself will naturally strike. Um, on the animal or gain to try to bite that respective pinky. That being said, also, um, you know, some animals, and, and this is kind of a common thing within the hobby, this isn't something I agree with, actually, but there is a method of assist feeding called tailing. And the reason why I don't necessarily like the assist feeding and use of rodent tails for this process is I don't believe that there's enough nutrients in that respective tail. And then once that animal then starts to feed on the tail, it's going to start their um, metabolism going, and it could actually relate to a faster decline in the animal. Hmm. Um, Preferentially, if you are in that approach, you know, smaller respective animals, and also I think biologically or anatomy wise when we think about the stomach design and intestinal tract of a snake 
you know, you're going to have part of that tail in the actual stomach and part of it in the intestine, and it may not be um, digested properly. It may lead to some acid reflux within the animal, not in terms of entirely regurgitating the prey, but could also relate with some other um, scarring too as well that could happen in terms of the digestive tract. Um, so tailing, I'm not a big fan of. Um, if I was to tail an animal, I would typically use a rat's tail just because you're going to have more body to mm -hmm. that. You're going to have more um, flesh or fat tissue for that. Um, the other thing off of this in, in terms of that is typically if I was in the approach of needing to assist feed and it was a smaller animal, what I've done in the past is actually take a pinky while it's frozen and laterally slice it down the body and use half of a small pinky to actually assist feed with the actual snake. And the reason why I would go that route is you're going to have, again, more protein, more flesh, more fat yeah. to really start versus a tail. Because once you start tailing a snake, it's not going to be weekly. It's going to be every couple of days just to keep and maintain weight on that animal. And as Zach, you kind of mentioned, the ethics and morality of this is now we're we're really playing God because <laughs> yes. we are keeping an animal alive that may not be in homeostasis and may not no. be of, um, you know, an aspect to survive because there's something else going on. Um, so typically before I even do assist feeding, force feeding... Um, one of the best methods I have found in the past is creating a false bromation. Yep. Um, and this is very true, especially with mandarin rats, and uh, even it works with corn snakes too. Um, also works with king snakes. But what I'll do is typically any basement floor or cement, if you temp gunned it, it's going to be about 60 degrees. So what I'll end up doing is taking that respective um, animal in a container and putting it in a dark room, no lights on, directly on the cement floor, and I would leave that animal for a few weeks, anywhere from three to four weeks, because now you've lowered its temperature, its metabolism is slowed down, and then when you bring the animal out of bromation, then you start offering food, and then hopefully it elicits a feeding response. Um, so that would be the route that I would go. There are also um, techniques that I've been taught over the years, and part of the teaching of those techniques was more so to deliver antibiotics um, for the treatments of parasites, or um, in, in some aspects there might have been also um, you know, nutrient deficiencies or calcium, especially from wild-caught animals. But what you can do, and again, this is something I would not teach someone, but and I would definitely strongly urge um, if you wanted to learn some of this, definitely seek out a reputable um, veterinarian. And there is a means of tube feeding yes. where basically you take a syringe and you connect it to um, an elastic um, rubberized tubing and you insert it directly down the respective um, snake's mouth. And this is why I say you have to make sure that you would seek out a veterinarian for yeah. this is because this is, 
this is very intrusive and really should only be done by someone that has done this, learned this technique, but you insert the tube directly to the stomach and then you use a meal replacement to actually force fluid into the body or cavity of the stomach to actually feed the animal and then remove the respective tubing or feeding apparatus um, from the respective snake and leave the snake go. Off that topic <laughs> too, I would never buy a pinky pump. Yeah, all right, we were gonna... Pinky pumps are even nice. sold. Um, if you've ever used one... <laughs> I was going We had to bring up the pinky pump. <laughs> if you've ever used one... <laughs> it's horrific. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there, there are much better options mm -hmm. for this. Um, there are meal replacements that veterinarians use, um, and they are available to the public. You can order them, but I think the first step is if you are going to initiate this process, you know, you really need to be well-trained or seek out veterinary assistance. Yeah. And I think the only time, you know, within force feeding and assist feeding, that this topic should really be introduced or restricted is, you know, obviously there's an investment within all of our collections, but that's the challenging and the moral and ethical aspect where you have a challenge because you have a financial gain and then you also have the moral and ethics of keeping an animal that may not be fit or suitable to survive in captivity. Um, and that's all I'm going to say on that because we're not getting into that yeah. debate. <laughs> the only thing that I can add about the assist feeding um, is that I definitely had some animals. I don't, I don't do the force feeding. You know, truth be told. I mean, I freaking teach evolution, people. So if if you're if you're not going to eat, and, and I I certainly don't give up on them. I don't say okay, we'll slowly starve to death. They're still offered food. Uh, they're offered all the myriad of tricks and everything we've discussed. But if they end up passing on, you know, this is called herpetoculture. We're culturing these animals. We want to make sure that the genes for feeding and, and you know, yes, having the purple snake's great, but having a purple snake that eats is better. So we want those behavioral components. And it's funny that you mentioned this earlier, but this is absolutely the way that I do this, when we're acquiring animals for the, the university, when I'm acquiring animals for my collection, um, and I get asked, well, which one do you want? I don't care what it looks like. Number one thing for me is I want the one that eats the best. That's my number one criteria, uh, because that just means that it's going to be less heartache keeping the thing alive, and it has a higher likelihood of it surviving. Um, so that's just something to consider. But... When I assist feed, I, I had uh, some urethra lampris that were really weird. And they were actually weren't, a, they weren't juveniles, they were adults. But, you know, I was trying to establish these things. Um, they were the urethra lampris typhlus, the green, the velvet swamp snakes that a lot of people know that I got into. And they all crashed. Um, I cannot remember the guy's name, but there is somebody out there that successfully bred them this year, which is a really big deal. So kudos to you. There will be pictures of those in my book. But I, about half of those animals, they, they would not eat the uh, material that was drop fed. And I tried the, the mice, the goldfish, not goldfish, did not feed them goldfish. Um, the, shoot, the, the rosy reds. And then I would like, basically 
gut load them. I would keep them in a tank up at school for about a month and feed them a high quality food, get them up to the point where they actually were like, not those starved little minnows you see in Petco, but like legit fish. Then they came home. Um, they wouldn't eat those, wouldn't eat tilapia chunks, wouldn't eat the bullfrog legs. So like we're talking about everything. But what I was, what I did is I took pinkies and I, I would you know, grab this and I did this my my demeanor while doing it was like calm. I, I did not do the Steve Irwin grab, shake, danger, danger, danger stuff. It was very deliberate and calm. That doesn't mean the snake's not freaking out as I'm doing it. But I would grab it, very carefully open the snake's mouth, put the pink in there, and then I would drop and freeze. And a really weird thing is that every single one of those snakes would sit there for about two minutes, and then they would gobble down the pink. And I did that. Uh, with each one about 10 times and then they all started to eat and then they all crashed and died and I have thought about this for quite some time and I wonder I'm going to throw it out there did they crash and die because even though they were eating they're still stressed out of their minds because the food monkeys picking them up grabbing them from behind the head introducing a prey item into their mouth and then putting them down in a plastic tub which is not Venezuela so, you know, yes, they're eating, but they're also being stressed out. So, you know, six of one, half dozen of another. These are the things we got to think about. Um, when I had Eastern hogs, uh, I, I had a couple of them. I don't have them anymore because West Virginia passed legislation. We can't have them. I wasn't really doing great with them anyway, so it's okay that I can't have them. But when I was able to have them, I had captive born stock and... Um, that's a species of snake that you might argue the people that have them established have done a wonderful thing, but I don't know how great it is to have them because they really should be eating toads. Uh, everything shows that they're amphibian eaters. Um, but I was able to get a couple to eat the same way I did with the typhus, which is grab them, introduce the pink into their mouth, put them down. Um, and then they gobble down the, the, the pink. I am not a fan of shoving things down throats into stomachs. Uh, there is all kinds of um, capillary beds and, and, and vascularity in the larynx and the stomach. And when you are delivering that prey, no matter how gentle you are, you're going to be rupturing that. You're going to be causing hematomas potentially. Um, so I, I, I think that it's of the, you know, when we get to that point, I think it's the ethical question that we've been discussing. Uh, is it really worth it to keep it going? Um, but yeah. So on that happy note, <laughs> I actually think this is a pretty good episode. I like the episodes where it's just you and I discussing a topic. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, the only thing I would add in terms of thinking about the tailing of snakes is when you introduce that tail, as I mentioned, you're you're kind of going off the side of the animal's mouth and rubbing it down. At that point, when the introductory is there, what you want to do is put the snake down. Yes. And typically, I would tap the tail of the snake and let the snake take the prey or the tail of the respective rodent by itself. Don't shove the thing down there because, again, you're exposing bone and cartilage from the tail directly into the respective um anatomy of the respective snake yep. so no but yeah i think great episode 
covered a lot of topics for the generalized public, introduced some techniques because a lot of people don't generally talk about no. this. So. And and with our you know, we don't have the luxury that the Boed peeps have because a lot of those now not all of them, but many of those snakes are born they have a overall general their, their metabolisms are slower to begin with. Uh, they can afford to go a fairly long time without eating. There are absolutely colubrids that if they're not eating within a month of being born, they're going to crash and burn. So um, getting the animals to feed is important. I think the moral of our story here is the most important thing to do, though, is mitigate stress, focus on making sure the environment that the, that the animals are living in is conducive to them, um, present the prey items in a manner where they're going to take them, and if you're trying to feed a, a, a king snake, a pinky, and it wants a baby corn snake, then take a, you know, think outside the box a little bit here and don't try to force your, an aspect of care that makes it easy on you onto this animal that has millions of years of evolution telling it to do something completely different. So, you know, blend up a frog, dip the pinky in there and then offer it that. So there you go. But Blend up frog legs, not an actual frog, because that could be illegal depending on where you're at. Okay. Um, well, that's all I, I think we, we've got for this one. Uh, I, if you've made it to this point, we're serious. We can keep this discussion going on Facebook, and people can search Facebook, and we can make an archive of, of this there. You know, if you were listening to us and, and vibrating, they didn't talk about this, by all means, add it. You know, we're all about that. We're, we're, we're not claiming to be the end-all, all-knower, all-knowing you know, colubrid keepers. We're just putting out into the ether what we know. Um, and it was great interviewing you, Matt. <laughs> so I'll have to do more of this in the future. <laughs> um, okay. So with that, uh, you know, I'm Zach. If you want to get a hold of me, reach out to me on Facebook, Zach Loafman. Uh, you can reach out to me on Instagram, Dr. Crawdad. Uh, I, I will do this every episode. If you're a young person interested in doing herpetoculture for your grad career, by all means, talk to me. As far as I know, I'm the only person that has a dedicated lab to it. Um, went to that biology of pit vipers meeting, got inspired. Uh, we're going to be changing the name of the lab and we're actually going to be, you know, releasing it to everybody, but there's going to be some herpetology in there too, not just herpetoculture, which is cool. Uh, so by all means, reach out to me. We actually had somebody reach out after we talked about the Andreas project. So that's great. And there's a really high likelihood they're joining our program. So uh, there's that. Matt, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you at? Well, you can join the line of emails that <laughs> I, I still have to respond to from traveling this mm -hmm. week. <laughs> nice. But uh, no, all joking aside, though, uh, you can shoot me a message on Sarpamitra or on both Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, you can also email me at matt at sarpamitra.com. All righty. And thanks for the whole NPR network. Oh, yes. Thank you. We wouldn't have a home without NPR. Uh, and I think it's worth throwing out there that they just celebrated their 500. Uh, Morelia Python Radio just had their 500th episode, which is just absolutely insane. So without Owen and Eric, we wouldn't be here. So if you like us, you like them too, because the pod father's the reason we exist. So with that being said, uh, this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. 
thank you all. And whether it's the morning, the afternoon, or the night, have a good one. Later. <laughs>